Area 941 podcast are produced and distributed by Community Powered 94.1 KPFA Radio. Please help support Area 941 at kpfa.org. I'm Richard Walensky. This is KPFA's Bay Area Theater Podcast. My guest is Taylor Mack, playwright and performer of A 24-Decade History of Popular Music, a 24-hour performance concert presented in four six-hour segments, September 15th and 17th and 22nd and 24th at the Current Theater in San Francisco and in an abridged version at Stanford's Bing Hall on September 27th. It's presented by The Curran and Stanford Live in association with The Magic Theater and Pomegranate Arts. Taylor Mack is the author of 17 plays, including Her, H-I-R, and The Lily's Revenge, both of which played recently in San Francisco at The Magic in Fort Mason. Taylor Mack is also an actor with several awards and nominations, a 24-decade history previously played to rave reviews at St. Anne's Warehouse in New York, and was a finalist for last year's Pulitzer Prize in Drama. Taylor Mack, a 24-decade history of popular music in 24 hours. You've written 17 plays, and you've done a lot of theater work. Let's go back to the origins of this particular show. You said in an interview that the catalyst for this show, or maybe it was just the catalyst for a lot of things, was going to the uh, AIDS walk in San Francisco when you were around 15 years old. And that was how you opened talking about this particular show. So what did that mean? Well, I think it was the first one or the second one. It was in Golden Gate Park. I'd never met an out homosexual. And so the first time I ever met one or saw one was thousands of them all at the same time. So to kind of suspect a community exists in the world and to suspect that there is a queer history and queer agency and queer pride but have no proof of it and then see it en masse like that all at once was a pretty profound experience for a little kid growing up in Stockton, California. I think that planted a, a little seed in the back of my brain and my whole career in some ways has been about <laughs> trying to recreate that on the stage in various ways. And I did it unconsciously for many years. It was just there and part of my work. But when I decided to make a 24 decade, I decided to do it consciously and to try to make a metaphorical representation of that experience, but use it as a microcosm for for a show about American history and various communities throughout our history that were struggling with something similar as the people who were there at that AIDS walk. So people who are building themselves as a result of being torn apart. The 24-hour musical idea, what brought you to even think about doing something this expansive? Everything always happens from so many different angles, but the main thing is that I, I tend to work where the content always dictates the form. So I think about what the show's about, and then I search for a form that will work for that. It's very Sondheim. And the content was about these various communities. It is about them building themselves because they're being torn apart so I was looking for a form that would do that, and I thought a durational concert would work. I wanted to use 
some kind of form that the purpose of it is to rally the people to a cause, to celebrate together, to mourn together. And it seemed like popular music was the art form that best does that, that uses its imperfections, its simple chord structures and its imperfect rhymes as a way to get to the people and rally them. So I thought that's the best form for this particular show is a durational concert where the audience is kind of falling apart I'm falling apart, the band is falling apart, the orchestra is falling apart. But as a result of doing it all together, we're building bonds with each other. And as a result of going through all this history together, we're building these bonds. Have you done it for 24 hours in a row? Yeah, we did it in October of 2016. So we marathon the show. We've spent about six years workshopping it in various decades. We would just do various decades. So we'd do a 90-minute concert that was just 1776 to 1786. And then we started to squish them together and do three-hour performances and then five-hour ones, six-hour ones. We did one 12-hour one. And then last October, we did a 24-hour performance nonstop from beginning to end. I guess you and the audience had been through the same ordeal together. It bonds you, doesn't it? <laughs> yeah, I feel like they're family members now. <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, I really do. I feel like uh, I see them on the street and, and we all just hug each other. <laughs> like, I mean, there was some, somewhere between 700 and 800 of them. So, you know, I still haven't come in contact with all of them, but people say they were there and it's just we kind of like fall into each other's arms. But that experience was so much about the event of it. And so what we're doing here in the Bay Area is also an event because six hours is not easy. You do fall apart in six hours. It's a challenging thing. But it allows us to focus a little bit more on the material rather than the event of just staying up all night and hearing all the music. So it's still durational, but it allows people to go home, think about what they saw, and if they want to come back to chapter two and see the next six hours, they come back to chapter two with a new understanding of what they're walking into. And then they see another six hours. It's just a little bit more humane, though still challenging. I think it's the sweet spot, actually. Having done so many different configurations, I think the six-hour show is the sweet spot. When you first started, were you thinking 24 decades? Were you thinking, we'll just do two decades, and then suddenly you go, okay, Let's go back to the beginning, 1776. We kind of workshopped them totally out of order, but the idea was always to ultimately do it linearly. There is one decade that we we switch. So nothing is consistent in this show. I'm always messing things up. I say, these are the rules of the show, and then we break those rules halfway through the show, and then we go back to the rules. So something's always changing. Sometimes the communities we're talking about are metaphorical, sometimes they're literal, sometimes the music vernacular that we're using of the songs from the era are accurate, and sometimes we do something from 1836 in a musical style of 1970. Six, you know, so we're always changing it up, and and that's kind of what's exciting about the show. It is a living show that has rules and has rules of engagement, but then then we get to play with them and approach it from a completely different perspective. And pretty much every single time we perform it, it's not totally different, but a good twenty percent of the show is improv and changing and and working off what's in the room with us right now. It isn't like a play per se. It's all scripted, but you can go off script. It's scripted, but it's a living text. Yeah, so 
it's actually more like the original plays, the Egyptian plays that theater was founded on, which were these kind of festival plays. They had their outline that they would do and they had their talking points, but you're kind of making it up. You're allowing virtuosity of crafted material to coexist with the chaos of life, <laughs> you know, instead of this thing where you can do it eight times a week and it's exactly the same every night. So it's more the, the root of theater than it is this new 20th century theater. Yeah. From a political perspective, that means that any given night, you might be aware of some outrage that happened from that clown in the White House. Oh, yeah, they get incorporated. But, you know, my, my big thing is uh, calamity always gets incorporated. So whatever is trying to take over the world in ugly ways, it becomes part of the show. Whatever is trying to take over the show in ugly ways becomes part of the show, but it doesn't get to be the lead. That's the important part. You can't ignore it, but you can't let it take over. So what he does is part of the show, yes, and will be, but there's no way I'm letting that man be the lead of my story. But it means that, for instance, for this show, there might be incorporated mention of Irma or... Yeah, I think about these kind of things, and I'll, I'll read the local papers and see what's going on, and it may or may not get incorporated into the work. It depends on just really what's happening. So much relies on the audience and how they're responding and what they're doing. So you never know what's going to happen. I'm only interested in history because it helps us in this present moment, and it helps us kind of rally ourselves to try to dream the culture forward rather than try to make the America great again, you know, <laughs> which means like rather than taking us back, it's about trying to, you know, progress into the world. Taylor Mack, there are 246 songs total. And aside from the fact that you have to memorize the lyrics for all of them, do you perform all of the songs in each 24-hour cycle or do you switch her off or how does that work? Yeah, we perform all of them. I've chosen the songs and those are the songs. That's our outline. Now, it doesn't mean we perform them the same way every time. And we're currently adding a new song into the show because we're about to go to Australia and I wanted an Australian song. So we're going to try it out, I think, in San Francisco, but it should be pretty fun. It's something people will recognize. You've said that the goal of classical music is to touch the hem of God, and the goal of popular music is to reach people. I'm speaking in general terms, right. you know, but I feel like when I say to reach the hem of God, I'm using that as a metaphor, which is what it is. Of you're reaching for perfection. You're reaching for virtuosity. And the goal of a popular song is to reach the people. So they're doing two different things. Now, you could argue that you reach the people by striving for virtuosity, and that could be true. But I think it's safe to say that the invitation to, to the popular form is popular because it is an easier invitation. It's less complex. So you can get to the point of what you're trying to do rather than get wrapped up in a quest for polish. I really think about it in terms of Nina Simone. It all comes down to Nina Simone for me. Obviously, is one of the great musicians in the history of musicianship. But she is not interested in perfection when she performs. She will often sing off-key. She can sing on key, but she will often sing off-key. The most important thing to her is story, is reaching the people with the story. 
And sometimes if she's talking about inequality, it's not going to sound pretty, you know? So she allows her vulnerability, her humanity, uh, her imperfection to just be part of the art in tandem with the virtuosity. And so that's what I really am trying to do on a stage is put those two things together on the stage at the same time. What you learn, you know, in, in, in training and school is work the technique and then get on stage and forget it. I think that's true. The difference is that some people think that working the technique and rehearsing is something that you do alone in your room or just with your collaboratives and you don't invite the audience into that experience. And we actually invite the audience into that experience. We say, you're helping us make this show. Every time we perform it, they change the show and they help us make it. So we are really inviting them into our process uh, at the same time. The rehearsal and the polished work are the same thing. It's a scary way to work, but it's thrilling at the same time. There is political theater here, and you are making a point. How do you ensure that the show doesn't get too polemical? We have dichotomy amongst in ourselves, but that's not all we are. So as long as I'm expressing the full range of who I am and trying to um, reach the people who are an expression of themselves and, and trying to get them to rebel against an obstinate sense of self, get them to kind of see themselves as more than just one thing, then the polemic thing is not an issue. Taylor Mack, I watched a little of it on YouTube, and I kept thinking, oh my God, it's Lucille Ball. Uh. And another time, I know that the influence of Charles Ludlam is certainly there. What are your influences for this? People always want to put that Charles Ludlam on me, and I'm sure it's there. I think he was amazing. But there is this strong desire for somebody to pick up the mantle of Ludlam because he was taken from us too soon. But I'm, I'm not the flag bearer. I mean, I'll be honest about that. I'm interested in different things. For me, it's not just about the ridiculous as a way of exposing things. It's, uh, I use different techniques to expose things. But it is about exposing. It is about unearthing and, and the reveal. It's about reminding people of the things they've forgotten, dismissed, or buried, or that other people have buried for them. So my influence is, you know, it's, it's Nina Simone, it's Moliere. In terms of trying to get to the full range of who we are, we are poetic, we are we are funny, we are tragic, we are all of it. It's Euripides more than Sophocles. You know, it's it's a little wilder. Uh, it's less, you, you can't quite pin it down into one genre. Um, so uh, those are the classical people who inspire me. And then you know, I've had tons of mentors. I talk about some of them in the show. Elizabeth Suedos was a mentor, and uh, Romulus Lenny was a mentor, and uh, Lamford Wilson and Michael Warren Powell, these two guys that ran the Circle Rep Lab and were mentors. And <laughs> there's so many. I mean, Judy Garland performed at the current theater, and I get to get dressed in the dressing room that she had, you know? <laughs> like, I mean, what else do you want from life? <laughs> well, I mean, one of your mentors might have been Justin Bond, and you perform with him. Yeah, Vivian is uh, is definitely, I think of Justin Vivian as kind of a, a big sister of performance art world in terms of, yeah, there, there weren't that many people from that that survived AIDS that were doing what I'm 
doing, you know, in the yeah. culture. They were there, Ethel Eichelberger, certainly, you know, they were there, but they, they didn't survive. There's a gap in the baton passing down, and Vivian's just a few years older than me. And so I feel like, ah, Vivian got that baton somehow, and anything Vivian does, I just am in freaking love with, you know. <laughs> I bow down to Justin Vivian Bond and Kenny Melman from Kiki and Herb, I think, both of them together creating that. It changed the way I think of what, certainly, what a cabaret could be. Before I turned on the recorder, I mentioned Josie's Jute Joint, which had a lot of those people performing in the Castro. You were too young at the time to see them. Yeah, yeah. I did sneak into one, and I saw I saw oh, Kate oh, Bornstein. Oh, I interviewed Kate Bornstein. Uh, did you? Yeah. yeah, yeah. I saw Kate Bornstein at the Juice Joint uh, years ago. She did this number where she put clothing pins on her arms and she had the audience take them off of her <laughs> and it, it was very interesting for a 19 year old <laughs> I was fascinated what is this <laughs> when I interviewed her it became clear that her wasn't a he and her wasn't a her oh yeah it's, does, Kate, I don't know if Kate uses uh, different pronouns I've always I've always heard her say her well, but, maybe but she, she may have changed does. that recently everyone's changing it I love that I love that you could just change your pronoun you could change your gender you could change it back you could change it again you could flip 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 you could just change for the rest of your life isn't that what we should all strive for <laughs> you call yourself a Judy I don't call myself a Judy. It's a, that's my gender pronoun. So it's, uh, yeah, it is just, it's who I am. People would say he, they would introduce me as he, they would introduce me as she, not as a term of endearment, but as a gender. Right. And neither one of those felt right for what I'm doing. So I, uh, when Vivian uh, created V as V's gender pronoun, I thought, oh, right, you can invent your own. Certainly Vivian has opened up my brain a little bit. You can invent your own. You don't have to accept what is given to you in this world. And that is really the story of, that's the story of Ludlum that I feel connected to, is you don't have to accept what is given to you. And he was given the option. You can have an under five you know, you can be a bit player for the rest of your life because you're a type. You're a little too effeminate to be a star. And he said, no, 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 no. <laughs> and I, I love that. Just in terms of everything. Just because Donald Trump says that this is what the government is giving us, we don't have to accept that. We're here to uh, to change things. When I watched sections of your show on YouTube, my first thought was, Taylor Mac is dressed in drag. And then I thought, no, that's not drag. The gender that you're on stage as is not a gender that, yeah, that applies. I'd say that I'm not male or female or even genderqueer. My gender is performer. That's my gender. I perform <laughs> gender and my gender is performer. Yeah. One of the more astonishing things in watching those scenes and seeing photos are the costumes. When did you get involved with Machine Dazzle? Machine and I have been working together since 2004. What's the concept behind the different costumes in relation to the singing? They're all part of the same story. I mean, aesthetics and content are, to me, the same thing. 
you can't separate politics from aesthetics. Wearing jeans and a t-shirt, that is drag. It's just a certain kind of drag and it's telling a certain kind of story. Right. And so, you know, the fact that machine invents an aesthetic that is so far beyond just jeans and a t-shirt, their works of art that you get to wear, that tells you something about our content, that our content is wearable art. You know, that our content is, is trying to do something to you other than placate you. It's trying to open something up in you. It's trying to make you wonder, rethink a silhouette, rethink an idea, rethink a, a, a sense of obstinance. How many costume changes do you go through in a six-hour show? Oh, six. So there's a different outfit for every decade. And it, so that <laughs> and means you have to step off stage for a couple of minutes. No, or do you we do, do a it lot of them on stage. Yeah. We mix it up. It's like I said before, we're always mixing it up. So sometimes we go behind a screen. Sometimes you see the silhouette of the change. Sometimes we change right in front of you. Some, we're always changing it up. We're, we're, you know, it's the, the name of the game is surprise for me. I think that there should always be something surprising every 10 seconds on, on stage because that's how you feel. The only time you ever feel anything is when you're surprised. It's just scientific. So that's interesting as a theater practitioner to consider that. It doesn't mean that the surprise has to be big and giant. And uh, there's a distinction. I'm not talking about shock. I'm talking about surprise. Right. Uh, surprise opens you up and shock shuts you down. But it can just be two w words that you haven't heard together before. That could be a surprise. It could be the fact that your wig is made out of balloons. It could be the fact that, you know, different there, it could be um, reframing something you've always understood as one way and suddenly seeing it a different way. So I'm always working, we're stitching surprise into the show. So it's six hours of surprise, basically. Taylor Mac. The research on this show, particularly the research on the earlier songs, you went to New England to find these songs? If I had done this show, finished this show 10 years ago, I would have had to write a, a travel grant in order to go to all the different libraries to do all the research. But luckily, uh, I chose a time to do it when most of uh, the library's catalogs are online you can find this music and these broadsheets and you can find all the material that you need primarily online by just searching, 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 searching. But I did have to go to a few libraries. I went to Dartmouth and went to their library there and researched a bunch of uh, older stuff. Every decade has something that people will recognize and every decade has something that you know, hardly anyone's ever heard. What's the most surprising, maybe a queer song or an anti- racist song, something from that first 50 years that would have shocked you and going, wow, I didn't know they were this sophisticated or... Oh, well, I mean, I, the thing that I love in the show, we spend the second decade of the show, 1786 to 1796, just focusing on the early women's lib movement. It is amazing to see 1786 women talking about equal rights mm. and the things the tactics that were used to stop them from you know really galvanizing that movement at that time and um, were the same tactics used to stop Hillary Clinton from getting elected that cycle is fascinating but there's a song called the rights of women which is to the tune of God save the queen that is just all about women's liberation 
and ha- has um, lyrics in it that aren't exactly like men take up too much space. You know, it's not that simple, but that's what they're saying is men take up space. They try to make equality their story and it's our story too. And we get to have equality too. It's fascinating. So I, I love all that. There's a lot of them. There's a, a song Frederick Douglass writes in his autobiography that there were songs that enslaved people were singing on the plantation that when the white when the white slavers weren't around. One of them's called My Bondage, My Freedom. There's one lyric that is, uh, the big bee flies high, the little bee makes the honey, the black man picks the cotton, white man makes the money. What year would that have been? Uh, that would have been uh, around 1836. Hammerstein could have gone back and gotten some of the lyrics for Old Man River from listening to songs like that. Yeah, I, I suppose he could. <laughs> <laughs> that Old Man River song is a little complicated, if you ask me. But <laughs> yeah, yeah, well, there's a lot of there's American lot musicals of, have a lot of complicated. Yeah, stuff. a lot of people trying and failing, which I I appreciate actually. You know, the trying and the failing is great. We just have to acknowledge that it failed, but it allowed us to get to the next step or it allowed certain kinds of people to get to the next step. And so it's useful. Uh, all of these songs are useful. I mean, there's this, even the really horrible ones, even the horribly, uh, the minstrel songs and the, the really sexist songs and the homophobic songs. I mean, we include some of them. Again, I don't let them take over the show, right, but, yeah. but the point is you can't ignore them. So we do incorporate them and we do some things to try to make them of use to us now instead of something that is dragging us back to nostalgia. How about gay subtext songs? There must be tons of those. I mean, obviously in the 20th century, you've got all of Cole Porter. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, we've got like masculine women, feminine men, and all that kind of stuff um, from the 1920s. But the early stuff, sure. I mean, who do you think that dandy was in Yankee Doodle Dandy? There was a queer. (laughs) I know it was used to make fun of, you know, the dandy and make fun of effeminate men and stuff, but that means that they were there. (laughs) Well, I I noticed in the YouTube section I saw was the song After the Ball, which is an older song that pops up in Showboat, and you talk about, well, who is this person and why isn't he married? Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. You know, the, there's a, a young maiden climbs an old man's knee, has for a story. Do uncle, please. Why are you single? Why live alone? Have you no babies? Have you no home? You know, and it's the gay 90s, it's 1890s. So why is that uncle single? You know, it's that's the that's a little bit of what we do in the show is we, we say, hmm, there's a little clue here that these people existed and yet history isn't saying that they existed. So let's let's talk about that let's frame this whole this whole little period around that idea getting back to my earlier question about something that surprised was there anything any song that you found that just made you fall flat on your face that you couldn't believe for either one way or the other that it existed the first minstrel song coal black rose it is shocking to me how horrible it is. The very first one is relatively benign, depending on your definition of benign, but there's a sea shanty adaptation that we do that is just, it is so, it's about celebrating rape. And it's a, it's a, was a massive hit. <laughs> yeah. I, I mean, the, the foundation of our country is evil. 
not to say there's not good stuff in all of that, but there is a foundation of evil in our country. And uh, there are a certain number of population that are trying to recognize that and improve and change and build a new foundation. And then there's a certain other part of our uh, population that want, refuse to acknowledge that it's evil and refuse to change change it and in fact do worse than that or fostering it and trying to build it up you know so we're trying to do our part in tearing it down so that we can build it into something better sometimes when the contradictions become very very clear it becomes not easier but it becomes more obvious what needs to happen i guess it's interesting to me. I mean, I'm having done this show and maybe because growing up queer and a little gender weird and, you know, I was one of those people who was surprised that he won the election, but not surprised that he exists. I'm not surprised by the tiki torches, you know, <laughs> you know what I mean? But I, I am surprised that, that we've allowed the shame of that to go away to a degree, to the degree that it can happen. Um, so um, out in the open. I know that that there's that there's that underbelly there. So I suppose you could say it's good that it's out in the open and now we can deal with it. But I felt like we were trying to deal with it before as well. So I don't quite see that much of a difference just because of the history and the cycles and the um it just it all repeats itself. I couldn't believe the same tactics. They used the same tactics to stop Hillary from getting elected. I mean it just I couldn't believe it. And everybody, left and right, they just fell into it. It was just, we've got to stop that woman. Taylor Mack, now that you've done this, you're going to continue to do this, and you're working on new plays? Oh, yeah. I got uh, two plays that are finished that we're kind of, you know, we're trying to figure out how to get them produced because they're not cheap. And then the, and then I got a draft of a new play that uh, I just finished, a first draft uh, that uh, is going to get done before the other two because it's cheaper. I'm making, we're going to make a bit, this whole team that is making, has made this show, we're all getting together to make another show that I'll be telling people about in a couple of years, I'm sure. Is there any possibility that this show could be recorded for posterity? Yeah, we've got a live album that uh, we're going to be releasing at some point of the 24-hour concert. And we're going into the studio to record selections, songs that are kind of standalone that don't need all of my talking in them, (laughs) and songs that where we really change something. And where Matt, our musical director and arranger, really put his heart and soul into the arrangement rather than Yankee Doodle Dandy. We're not going to record that in a studio, but there's other songs that we will. And... uh, and then we're also doing a, a TV, uh, we're making a TV series of the whole thing. But that's for future conversations. A 24-decade history of popular music plays in four six-hour segments, September 15th and 17th and 22nd and 24th at the Current Theater in San Francisco and in an abridged version at Stanford's Bing Hall on September 27th. For more information, you can go to currentsf.com for the current performances and to live.stanford.edu for the Stanford version.